Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communication specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. <laughs> Way to spice it up. I'm <laughs> Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of round table discussions. <laughs> Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, November 15th, 2020. We're full in Scorpio season. Yes. And uh, I thought we'd spice it up because we've had to say that 196 times. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, it reminds me of my current favorite, po- other than Polylog, my other favorite podcast, uh, You're Wrong About, which I have mentioned on the show. I tweet about it. It's Well, I think you're wrong about that. No. <laughs> but they change their tagline all the time based off of like what they're talking about. And they're always a gem every time. So Sarah Hobbs, she does. So you reminded me a lot. And I was thinking about it and you did it. And it's like you were Sarah Hobbs. Sarah Hobbs. It's awesome. Kind of like my other, my real favorite Hobbs, which is Hobbs <laughs> of Calvin and Hobbs. Let's keep Way ahead going. of the philosopher. It is not even that late. Okay. He, Hobbes is based on the philosopher, you know. That's where the name came from. I did not From know. the comic. Bill Watterson. We need to move on to the <laughs> show. Okay, today, oh, we already said today is September. We know what day today <laughs> is. November 15th, 2020. And today, to this all. <laughs> today, we are talking about... Today, we're talking about... Serious topics. Two main serious. things. They're so Be serious. serious, Naomi. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> So we are a couple weeks past the election. It is clear that Joe Biden is the president-elect and Kamala Harris is the vice president-elect. But Trump does not seem to acknowledge that or concede in any meaningful way. So we'll talk about the consequences of Trump's refusal. And then we're going to talk about coronavirus for at least the 50th time this year as cases continue to spike up pretty much in every state. And as people, as we get closer to the holidays and people are desperate and eager to see their loved ones, and it's just entirely too dangerous to do so. But first, let's begin with highlight low light. Naomi, this is a really good low, um, actually, why don't we start with the highlight? This is a really good highlight for us. Yeah, so it is quite the 180 from last week. We wanted to do a major, major kudos and applause to the closing conversation on Meet the Press. So our top highlight today is the conversation that was had on the panel regarding Latinos and their turnout and who and how they voted. All of our frustrations that I had last week about a lack of nuance, a lack of understanding how Latinos vary across the country, what their motivations are, that really came out in this conversation. So we have a couple clips we want to share. The first one is from Al Cardenas. He is kind of a big Republican Latino strategist. I think he is or was the chairman of the American Conservative Union, another kind of big Republican pack. And the Florida Republican Party as well. Yeah. Most people came as exiles from countries that were used to authoritarian figures. The second thing is that socialism 
stuck hard, and the Democrats never fought back. And Trump had a four-year investment in Miami. That's 3.1 percent mm-hmm. of the total Hispanic vote, and it was very peculiar, and uh, and it hit hard. It was probably half of a winning margin uh, in Florida for, for Donald Trump. But, you know, taking on a little bit of Jennifer's article, there were 15 million Hispanics, more or less, who voted, and about 30 percent voted for Donald Trump. Historically, over the last seven or eight presidential elections, you know, the margins have been between 25 and 40 percent for Republicans. So he was kind of on the lower side. Yeah. The uh, the net gain for uh, for Biden was 6.5 million voters in the Hispanic community. And frankly, he won by 5 million votes. So if you're a yeah. Latino organizer, you could say, hey, we got him a net polarity which exceeded the national polarity. So I don't think they did that bad. I think there were a couple of pockets like Miami and Texas that uh, that were an outlier. Wow, just so insightful, not only bringing data and experience, but comparing these numbers across the board. I mean, I didn't know that, that generally, historically, over the last seven or eight presidential elections, you know, Republicans have gotten between 25 and 40 percent. Well, yeah, especially uh, George W. Bush. Right. The Latino support for him was pretty high. Yeah. And so when you look at that, Trump truly was on the low side of that this time. He was way lower last time. But if we remember, as has been discussed, he talked so much more about Mexican-Americans in the 2016 election than he ever did this this time in a negative fashion. Right. And some of the other things that were mentioned in this conversation was how much misinformation was targeted to Latinos across the U.S. and that for certain groups, that was really powerful. And one thing that I hadn't realized quite so much is that while Facebook did catch posts and misinformation and photos that were depicting misinformation that were in English, they did not catch them in Spanish. And so anything around socialism was really effective, especially in South Florida, where there's a lot of Cuban Americans and Venezuelans who have relocated to South Florida as well. We also heard on this panel from a few other folks, including Maria Teresa Kumar from Voto Latino, and Jeffrey Goldberg, the journalist and editor-in-chief of The Atlantic magazine. And Jeffrey Goldberg pretty much summed up kind of how we felt about some of the other media coverage around this. And and Chuck Todd kind of called it out as well. You know, uh, uh, Jeffrey Goldberg and I look at our own coverage of the Hispanic vote um, and in general the broad mainstream media's coverage of it. And I think it has um, been a bit sort of short-sighted. It hasn't gone into the peculiarities of the Latino vote the way we do on the white vote. And guess what? It's just as diverse. Right. I, I mean, that's the thing. The, 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 even the expression Latino vote is a little bit of yes, a misnomer. Uh, you know, there's a Cuban-American vote. There's a Mexican-American vote. There's a Mexican-American vote in California and a Mexican-American vote in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. Those are different Those are different votes. So we, we need to do a much better job of diving deeper into the complexity and diversity of this enormous community of Americans and and, and trying to understand uh, where they're headed. I would add only one thing that 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 smart Republican strategists will do the very same thing, right. because, you know, you do 
have certain through lines there, uh, religiosity, um, entrepreneurialism, uh, a, a community filled with small business people who want to be big business people, right. family, and, and, and all of the rest. And the Republicans always, uh, you know, have this opportunity right. never fully realized. So huge, huge, huge important point here by Jeffrey Goldberg, kind of really talking about the diversity within Latinos and kind of goes to what we talked about last week, that there's so many different facets and variations of the Latino experience here in the U.S. And we as media consumers, news organizations, we have to be aware of it and seek it, really, because if not, the assumption is that Latinos will always go to the Democrats, right? And that just simply isn't the case. Of course, that w- the assumption seems stronger this year, given the hostility that President Trump had towards Latinos, especially immigrants who are trying to come to this country, asylum seekers. But Maria Teresa Kumar makes the important point that demographics is not destiny, that unless a party does strategic infrastructure investment, that's when a group of people start listening to the party, start listening to their priorities and start considering if that's things that they want to vote for. And whether that's the Democrats or the Republicans, Latinos are just going to like fall on your lap. You have to kind of court them and you have to kind of seek their support. Absolutely. And all of this, everything we're talking about here is a nuanced conversation and it needs to be a nuanced conversation. But in some of the top, top journalistic organizations in the country, it's nothing of the sort. And I do want to kind of call out the awful, awful podcast that the New York Times put out this week. Well, awful episode. The whole podcast, (laughs) The Daily. (laughs) Normally, it has pretty good episodes. But it was a conversation that I was actually, frankly, very interested in between Michael Barbaro, the host, and Nate Cohn, who is their data guru guy who kind of replaced Nate Silver, you know. This is the the battle of the Nates, as we know. They've been very civil this election cycle. They truly have. But Nate Cohn was there talking about the Latino vote. And we had two white guys talking about the Latino vote with zero nuance. Zero. And broad generalizations across the board. Suggestions that Latinos are, you know, lower socioeconomically and therefore they vote for Trump and they can't, quote unquote, afford to vote for Biden because... You know, the Republicans are always better for people who are lower socioeconomically. That they're essentially motivated solely for economic reasons. Right. And that their economic reasons mean that they should vote for the Republican. Both of those things are completely, are certainly up for debate, right? So it was just outrageous. Anyway, here's a little snippet of that. And you can kind of compare that with the nuance we just played here. Now that we've seen more detailed results from elsewhere in the country, I think we can safely say that Latino voters really swung to Donald Trump. Hmm. Uh, estimates vary about Latino support for Trump in 2016, but it's somewhere in the 25 to 30% range. Uh, this year, I mean, we're still waiting for all the numbers, but we're expecting that to look more like 35%. And there's been an important focus this year on the fact that the Latino vote is not a monolith and you know, hence the divided support for Biden and Trump. But what's remarkable about this year is that when you look at the, the results so far, this increase in support for the president is consistent all over the country. Uh, It's true in the agricultural regions of California, like the Imperial Valley. It's true in the border towns along the Rio Grande. It's true, as you know, in Cuban areas like Miami-Dade County, but it's also true in Puerto Rican areas or around Orlando and Kissimmee. And it seems it's even true in the northern cities like Philadelphia or Milwaukee, where Latino voters are usually the very most reliable for Democrats. 
And the magnitude of the improvement for the president is really significant. There are counties along the Rio Grande where Trump picked up 50 points. Um, 50 you know, you can't points know for sh- among just Latino voters. Yeah, just a truly frustrating and abysmal summary of Latinos in 2020 and how they voted. And From the Daily. From the Daily, correct. And so I just would implore our listeners, if you're hearing things like this, even from the top institutions, the top media organizations, doesn't mean they can't do like trash takes. Like this is complete garbage that The Daily summarized. And so you have to kind of catch it, notice it when you see it, and then being able to kind of like completely take it out of your brain because it's not worth taking up any real estate there whatsoever. Bernan, do you have a highlight? Yeah, actually, it's a highlight that we saw from two of the shows this week, and it is the hosts themselves kind of connecting the dots for the viewer in their own little asides, asides that they explicitly told the people they were talking with that they don't have to comment on, but they felt it was important for the viewer to connect these dots. And in this first bit, you'll hear Jake Tapper in conversation with Anthony Fauci, and they were talking at the beginning of this clip about Ron Klain, who is the incoming chief of staff for Joe Biden, and who had worked very closely with Anthony Fauci during the Ebola outbreak of the Obama years. He was the coordinator, but he was absolutely terrific at the Ebola uh, situation where we had a very successful ultimate end game with Ebola. We developed therapies. Uh, we put the we put out the the outbreak in a you know it was a terrible outbreak obviously, but we ultimately were very successful. But that's how I got to know Ron. It's quite a contrast. In January of this year, Ron Klain wrote a piece for the Atlantic talking about what needed to be done for the pending crisis. This is in January, uh, and the next month, the uh, Trump's uh, acting White House chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, was saying that. Uh, the virus was uh, just a, a, another hoax from the media. You don't have to comment on that. I am. Uh, let's move on. And then after that, you'll hear a clip of Chuck Todd from his panel. This is kind of the same panel we were talking about, where he has a little aside related to the Trump campaign and the fundraising they're doing off of Donald Trump's refusal to concede the election. Uh, very quickly, I'm not going to ask any of you to respond to this, but we did put together a fascinating. The, the Trump campaign has sent out 200 plus emails since Election Day from November 4th to November 4, uh, 14th. And they all claim to be somehow about the recount. But just so you know, um, the Trump's leadership pack, according to the fine print, keeps all the money up to $5,000. Basically, until a donor gives more than $8,300, does any of the recount funds actually get money to focus on the recount there? Just wanted to get that out there and clarified for folks. When we come back, the battleground map changed again. So there we go. Jake Tapper bringing up the difference between the two chiefs of staff and how they contrast in terms of their outlook on the coronavirus, which has been very deadly and has proven that Ron Klain uh, certainly was prescient when he wrote that op-ed back in January of this year. And then Chuck Todd bringing up this fact that the Trump campaign is basically misleading their own email list recipients by suggesting that giving money would actually go to the recounts and the possibility of overturning the election when in fact it's just going to general campaign funds. Just overall, really valuable kind of side note or footnotes, I guess, maybe in these interviews that we should just be mindful of. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that they're not asking their the, the people they're talking to, to to comment on it. They're just saying, we got to I, I feel like it's important to get this out there. 
Naomi, did you have a low light this week? I have a low light, like a kind of low light. I don't know. I I have weird feelings. So (laughs) it's the first segment on this week, which was hosted by Martha Raddatz, who, of course, was on the road, as she often is. And she talked to several Trump voters and how they were feeling after the election. Listen to two different clips on different voters who voted for Trump in Ohio. I will never accept Joe Biden as president. I mean, if that's your question, that's my answer. I I just don't believe that he's right for our country. You think Donald Trump has won? Absolutely, I do. I mean, for me to believe that Joe Biden got 78 million votes, got the most votes of any president ever in the history of of voting, I, I find that very hard to believe. From my vantage point, I've there's too many smoke and mirrors in terms of ballots appearing here, reappearing there, disappearing here, this, that, and the third. Where there's smoke, there's fire. When we deal with globalists and liberalism, I'd put absolutely nothing past them. There's no way that, that it just doesn't, doesn't smell right. Too many irregularities. Okay, so she talked to a few other Trump fans, people who are super skeptical of the results of the 2020 election. And my immediate thoughts were, why? Why am I listening to them? What is the point of this segment? What value do I have of hearing about, hearing the skepticism directly from these voters? And it felt to me like all the profile pieces and think pieces of like understanding the Trump voter after 2016, when people were so shocked that Donald Trump won. And I read a few of them, but after a while I didn't, like, like, okay, we get it. Like, there's, like, white, angry people who are voting for this man. But I didn't really, I don't know, I, I don't see the value of it now anymore, right? Like, we know Trump has supporters. We know that the majority of white voters are supporting Donald Trump over Joe Biden. Like, we, there's certain things that we know. And, like, I don't understand, like, the quote-unquote understanding the Trump voter, why we need to understand them when Trump won and when he lost, Right. Like that seems a bit much. And so I don't know. The election was two weeks ago. So I'm trying to be generous in my assumptions. And, you know, maybe they'll, you know, this week another news organization will do a profile piece here or there. But if they do this over and over and over again for, you know, four to six months, the way that happened in 2016, 2017, then I'm definitely going to be super frustrated and just outright outraged. Right now, I just feel like not necessary, but don't get angry. And I'm hoping it'll just stay that way. Well, how about a profile of the Joe Biden voters out there? There are more of them than there are Trump voters who are, are looking on this situation and talking about how Donald Trump has done and why he's not conceding, right? I mean, it's just as valid. It's equally valid to what she's profiling here. Especially since the rest of the show talks about the dysfunction of the non-transition. Absolutely. And certainly, I have been extremely, extremely critical of the value of polling after this election. (laughs) Yeah. But I will note, and, and here's my take on polling, just FYI. The way I'm kind of making sense of polling right now is it's useful to get a general sense of where the country is on a certain issue. Okay. But I do not believe it's going to tell us something meaningful necessarily when the candidates are so close during during the race, right? Like, sure. It can tell us if like 90% of candidates are going to vote for candidate A and only 10% candidate B. That's valuable. 
But when it's like 45 versus 50 or 48 versus 52, I, I don't think it's really going to tell us much of value there. So I pre- that's why I kind of presage what I'm saying here, which is there was some polling about who Americans believe is going to be the next president. And right. it was only, I think, 3% who said that Donald Trump was going to be the next president. And so Martha Raddatz must have looked pretty far and pretty hard to find this 3% you know, a panel of 3% voters to put on TV. They do not represent the majority of Americans. Or the majority of Republicans. Who voted for Trump. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know why you're putting outliers on. I'm not saying they're liars. I'm saying outliers. (laughs) Why are you putting them on when they're not really representative of much of anything right now? And they don't really have any information that the rest of us don't have about this election. Yeah, that's fair, too. All right, well, let's get to the rest of today's show. Oh, there is a rest. (laughs) Can we ever create a 20-minute episode? I don't think so. No. That is not possible, this household. All right, so that moves us to segment one, and that's Trump, President Trump refusing to concede. Yes, and, you know, we should begin by saying that early this morning, before we woke up here on the West Coast, Donald Trump sent a tweet out, and this tweet said something like, he won because it was a rigged election. Essentially, that's 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 something that's, like that. That's the with, gist with of the it. he being Joe Biden. Joe yes. Biden won because the election was rigged. Yes, and everyone's like, "Oh my gosh!" He admitted it. He admits that Joe Biden won. And then ninety minutes later, well, <laughs> during these Sunday shows, yeah, because the shows like talk about like, "Wow, look at this tweet. Yep. How, that's crazy." Then he sends at the end of the show saying, "I don't concede anything." <laughs> And then, at least on this week and Meet the Press, they're like, uh, so that was not him conceding. He's taking it back right, in the last hour. And they talked about, apparently, there was reporting where they contacted White House aides, people who work for President Trump. Well, yeah, they were like, it looks said, like is this, it. Is this what's happening? Is Trump finally kind of moving on from this moment? And, and the aides said, yes, this is generally what it's going to look like. He's going to say that Biden won. They can move forwards with the transition, but he's going to keep saying it was rigged, right? Yeah. And yet Trump really isn't ready for that right now. And was it on Meet the Press or somewhere else where they said that, like, Trump's never, no one's saying conceding, like, Trump needs to concede, but they're saying, like, let's find a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Remember? Yep. I don't know who said that, so apologies to Let's bring this to a conclusion. Yeah. That's how the, that's how his, his Trump's his advisors aides, are yeah. trying. What is the conclusion of this? Ugh, I could not roll my eyes hard enough. Okay. Let's actually talk about some of the interviews that hit on this subject directly. So this week on the Sunday shows, unlike last week, there was practically nobody on the shows defending, or I guess I should say advocating for Donald Trump's position on this refusal to concede. The only person, only person who mentioned that Donald Trump really should pursue these legal strategies and that one should not admit that Joe Biden looks like he's going to be president-elect or going to be president, was Ken Starr, the lawyer who was the special counsel investigating Bill Clinton, who was on Fox News Sunday and is a frequent guest on Fox News. You might remember him from Polylog when we talked about his guest appearances during Donald Trump's impeachment, where he very much defended the executive branch's power in a very surprising turn for somebody who previously had criticized it so heavily when a Democrat was in the White House. Other than Ken Starr, there was nobody on the shows who pushed Donald Trump's position. 
Aggressively. Pushed. Aggressively. There were Republicans who said Donald Trump is within his rights to pursue his legal challenges, but it's not really good for the country. We heard that again and again and again and again. For example, take a listen to Asa Hutchinson. He is the Republican governor of Arkansas. He's also been a somewhat frequent guest on the Sunday shows, and he was on Meet the Press this week. Who do you believe won the election? Uh, I expect uh, Joe Biden to be the next president of the United States. Uh, it was good, actually, to see President Trump Trump uh, tweet out that uh, he won. I think that's a start of an acknowledgement. Uh, and it is very important that uh, Joe Biden have access to the intelligence briefings uh, to make sure that he is prepared. Uh, during times of transition, our enemies have an op opportunity to try to take advantage of us. Uh, we want to make sure that there is a, a smooth transition, particularly when it comes to uh, the vaccine distribution, the coronavirus, that uh, everybody understands what we're doing there and what the plan is for the future. So this is meaningful, not only because Asa Hutchinson is a Republican governor, but also because he was an undersecretary at the Department of Homeland Security. So he knows a little something about the importance of a smooth transition and not letting, as he says, our enemies have an opportunity to take advantage of this situation. And I also wanted to just note the phenomenal question here by Chuck Todd. I just really, really love simple questions. There can be a lot said about the dysfunction of President Trump and the consequences of his actions or, you know, there's so many ways he could have made this a loaded question. But he simply asked Governor Hutchinson, who do you believe won the election? It's really simple. And it's not a question you could really swim your way out of, I think, easily. Well, it's a it's a one or the other, right? Is it, you tell me who won. Give me the winner. I want to know. We also heard from another prominent Republican who used to work not in the George W. Bush administration, as Hutchinson did, but in the Trump administration itself. That is John Bolton. He was on this week. He's the former national security advisor for Donald Trump, served in that role for well over a year. And here's what he had to say about the legal fights that Donald Trump is pursuing right now. You just heard what those voters said about this election. More than 72 million are not seeing the outcome they wanted, and the nation really is deeply divided. There were thousands of Trump supporters marching in D.C. yesterday. How does your party, the Republican Party, address that? Hold on, I just want to pause it right there. You hear Martha Raddatz trying to talk about how big the voices were that she featured in the beginning, which we talked about in our low light, that these voices represent 74 million Americans and thousands who marched on Washington, when, as the polling suggests, that is not the case. They are in the minority, even within the minority that voted for Donald Trump. How does your party, the Republican Party, address that? Well, I think it's very important for leaders of the Republican Party uh, to explain to our voters, who are not as stupid as the Democrats think, that, uh, in fact, Trump has lost the election and that his claims of election fraud uh, are baseless. Uh, the, the fact is that we, we've seen litigation in all the key battleground states, uh, and it has failed consistently. Right now, the Trump campaign is doing the legal equivalent of pitching pennies. Where are their silver dollars? Where is the evidence 
Uh, I think as every day goes by, it's clearer and clearer there isn't any evidence. But if the if the Republican voters are only hearing Donald Trump's misrepresentations, uh, it's not surprising that they believe it. It's critical for other Republican leaders to, to stand up and explain what actually happened. Uh, they, Donald Trump lost what, by any uh, evidence we have so far, was a free and fair election. But, but you haven't seen that from Republican leaders. Very few of them are, are accepting those results. So, so what happens? I mean, you can talk about that all you want, but they're not doing it. Well, I think they're getting ready to do it. I've said I think this is a character test for the Republican Party. I don't buy the argument that Donald Trump has hypnotized Republican voters or that they're not capable of accepting the truth. This is this is a myth uh, that's that's being perpetrated. That's simply not true. But it requires people uh, to explain what happened. So I thought this was a really valuable point by John Bolton. And I've said before why I'm not the biggest fan of John Bolton, but credit where credit is due. I think it's really important that Republican leaders demand not just the White House, but their Republican counterparts to explain and defend this administration's refusal to concede. That it's not enough just to say President Trump isn't doing this and boo-hoo on President Trump and boo-hoo on this administration. There's a whole party that is tolerating this behavior and is letting President Trump have this tantrum and that it's incumbent on Republican leadership to explain why these legal fights are worth it, are worth the time, are worth the money and are worth everyone's attention. Yeah. And worth them putting their their names behind it, which is what all these Republicans are doing. That's a good point, too. And a good example of that is what we heard from Republican governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, on State of the Union. Listen to how he gives Donald Trump space and room to, as you say, Naomi, have that tantrum. Uh, President Trump's former chief of staff, John Kelly, said in a statement, quote, the delay in transitioning is an increasing national security and health crisis. Do you share those concerns that this delay could actually ultimately hurt the American people and that the transition should start as soon as possible? You know, Jake, I think we have to have uh, faith in our judicial system, faith in our electoral system. And I'd say this to both both sides of uh, of this. And I was certainly a supporter and remain a supporter of, of the president. But the president has every right to go into court, every right to bring any kind of evidence that he has. And no one should begrudge him that or say that there's anything irregular about that. On the other hand, it's it's clear Uh, That's certainly based on what we know now that Joe Biden is the president elect and that transition for the country's sake, it's important for a normal transition to to start through and the president can go on his other track and his legal track. We should respect that. But we also need to begin that that process. So. If you're not listening very closely, it sounds like Governor DeWine is of the mind that Joe Biden is the president elect and, you know, that things are just moving forward. And this is something that we've heard from a lot of Republicans that there's, you know, Trump has every right or he should pursue his legal options that are available to him. But in the end, it's unlikely to change anything and that Joe Biden is going to be our next president. What this answer does and what journalists are failing to do is to ask why those legal fights are worth it. It's it's trying to understand why are you willing to wait 
as well. Like, why do you think the president should do these legal fights? I mean, I guess it's in line with what the party has done with Trump these last four years, where it's like the White House has every right to do this, or it's within the right of the executive power to do this, even if there's zero precedent, it's unethical, or whatever. But because it's not like a blatant broken rule. Or or literally against the law. Right. They'll let the president do it. Yeah. And that that's that's not enough, right? Like, it's almost like Republicans saying, yeah, it's fine that Donald Trump doesn't produce his tax returns because even though it was a norm, it's not, you know, it's not necessary. It's not in the Constitution. So he's within every right not to give it up. And it's yet another norm that's being broken. But even more than that, it's something that a lot of people, as we just heard from a Republican governor, say is a dangerous thing for this country. We heard that again and again and again, even from correspondents on Fox News today. We heard the question in the panel from Chris Wallace asking the correspondent from Fox News, is this something that truly is dangerous? Jillian, is there a legitimate national concern here about the delay in the Biden transition getting access to some of this information? So, Chris, I have yet to talk to a single source this week at DOD serving in the military, in the national security policy space, or in the intelligence community who says they think this is a good idea. To the contrary, they're all lining up down the row saying this is not a good thing. It makes the Biden presidency less prepared to protect the homeland from day one. I will also say that having worked on the last transition between um, the W. Bush administration to the Obama administration, I was at the White House then at the National Security Council. We started prepping classified briefings for the incoming national security team more than six months out. That's widely considered to be the gold standard. This ain't that. So Republicans need to say why it's worth putting the country at risk, at the risk that they are putting it, by allowing Trump to to go and, and pursue these legal fights. And I think we're kind of hearing a little bit of the the push from Governor DeWine saying enough is enough. We need to move forwards. Let Trump pursue his own little thing. But we need to move forwards as a country. We saw Ron Klain on Meet the Press. He is now going to be the chief of staff to President-elect Joe Biden. He was on Meet the Press and gave some tangible examples of some of these consequences and how they affect the transition. And this was really, you know, quite a get for Meet the Press. It was the only show that got the incoming chief of staff. I'm curious, with your advisory coronavirus advisory board has there been any even informal contact between the task force and your advisory board has there been informal contact at uh, for instance between the uh, president-elect and dr fauci unfortunately chuck we can't we can't until we get that gsa ascertainment that authorizes us to contact government officials and so we can't have any of those kinds of contacts until we we get to that stage of ascertainment. Uh, obviously, there's information that passes in scientific circles. Mm-hmm. The people on our task force, like Dr. Osterholmer, are leading scientists. But, but Chuck, I think you hit a key point, which is that Joe Biden's going to become president of the United States in the midst of an ongoing crisis. That has to be a seamless transition. So there's an example of the danger inherent in the federal government not recognizing that Joe Biden is going to be president. And, you know, there's a fascinating thing that was brought to light during these Sunday shows, and it's in great contrast to the argument that is being put forward by Donald Trump, by Rudy Giuliani, by people like Ken Starr, that, hey, this this period when Donald Trump is fighting in the courts to, you know, try to 
try to win the presidency. This is very similar to what happened in the year 2000 when things were contested in Florida and George W. Bush's and Al Gore's legal teams, you know, went to battle on this topic, you know, until December, right? It was a long time. And this is very common and it's perfectly legal. Yeah, well, maybe it was. But what was brought up this week as well was that during that period when Bill Clinton was still president and we were waiting to find out who was going to win these legal battles between Al Gore and George W. Bush, during that period, Bill Clinton allowed George W. Bush to receive all of the briefings as if he was going to be president. Donna, privately, how angry, how frustrated is the Biden team with the fact that they can't get going on this transition? Well, as you recall, Chris, during the long saga of 2000 that I was involved uh, in uh, as campaign manager for Al Gore, uh, then President Clinton began to offer briefings to the incoming president, uh, George W. Bush. And guess what? It was super important that he got those briefings because less than a year later, there was an attack on U.S. soil, the largest attack since Pearl Harbor, And, you know, you need a president to be up to speed. So it's perfectly, perfectly possible for the Trump administration to allow this transition to begin while the legal battle continues. And that's been echoed by Republicans across the spectrum, including Senator Marco Rubio. We heard from another, well, not Democrat. We heard from independent Senator Bernie Sanders. He was on State of the Union and Bernie Sanders gave a really interesting answer to Jake Tapper about the risk of Donald Trump not proceeding with this transition and what it means for our overall democracy. But I will say this, Jake. Uh, Trump will have the distinction of doing more than any person in the history of this country in undermining American democracy. The idea that he continues to tell his supporters that the only reason he may have lost this election is because of fraud is an absolutely disgraceful un-American thing to do. And I would just hope to God that he has the decency in him to man up and say, you know what? We fought hard. We lost the election. Good luck to Joe Biden. I love America. But the fact that he's not even cooperating in the transition, the fact that he continues to deny reality, to continue to suggest that Biden has illegally won the election is beyond belief in terms of behavior for an American president. So I remembered this answer as Bernie Sanders saying he's doing more than any president to undermine democracy. But he says any person ever in history (laughs) of the world and universe. I mean, that is very dramatic. Quite a dramatic statement, but I think a strong statement. I mean, dramatic is an accurate Yes. Description of Senator Bernie Sanders. Yes, but it's a strong statement and it's a it's a statement that gets to the unprecedented nature of what Donald Trump is doing here. I feel like there were there have been lots of people on, you know, Republicans saying, hey, we need to move on. Democrats saying, look, this is this is serious. You know, we need to get these briefings. But all the while, Joe Biden saying, you know, don't worry, everything's okay. You know, Joe Biden is trying to be cool as a cucumber on everything, including this. But Bernie Sanders steps out there and says, this is outrageous. And Donald Trump is being very un-American and needs to stand up, needs to, as he says, man up, which I'm sure is something that will strike at the core of many followers of Donald Trump, many men who have voted for Donald Trump. 
Men care about that comment. Yes. Just yes. To be clear. Absolutely. So no women's inspired by a claim to man up. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I appreciated that Bernie Sanders, at least somebody is going out there and talking about how outrageous this is rather than just talking about, you know, just the facts sort of thing. You know, Bernie Sanders brings the, the, the emotional core to this argument. So on the other side of emotional core is rational strategy. And I think the Republicans have a lot of grappling to do and to kind of come to terms with. We started this segment earlier with Asa Hutchinson on Meet the Press, and we wanted to close this segment with Asa Hutchinson on Meet the Press. Chuck Todd, again, had a very interesting question, this time looking at the future of the Republican Party and who they will be listening to. Before I let you go, on January 21st, who's the leader of the Republican Party? Well, first of all, uh, I've been through that situation before (laughs) and we'll elect uh, new leadership, but there'll be a lot of different voices. Clearly, President Trump will have a voice for a long time in the party. Anybody that can generate those kind of crowds uh, that's had the accomplishments that he has had in office, uh, he will have an influence for some time to come. But there'll be other influencers, and there's going to be a significant debate uh, as to exactly the direction uh, of our party. Uh, Our fundamentals are sound. This election was a good election for Republicans. Uh, We just did not make the uh, presidency. But overall, governors, House, Senate, uh, legislators uh, puts us in very, very good position for the future. The public still embraces the Republican philosophy uh, that we have put forth. We'll continue to debate how that has to be refined. So it wasn't a ringing endorsement of Donald Trump as the continuing head of the Republican Party. And how could it be? You know, Trump is really putting these members, all Republicans, through the ringer here. All elected Republicans are having to face this situation where, once again, they have to kind of talk around the truth, dance around the reality to to bend to Donald Trump's whims and Donald Trump's ego. And that's, that's not going to win him a lot of favor with other elected Republicans who he's going to sort of need to step aside if he wants to indeed run once again in the you know, in four years or two years is when he would probably start the campaign for 2024, which it sounds like from whispers, you know, is something he's interested in doing. But there will be a significant debate, as Hutchinson says. Well, that takes us to segment two, which we'll be talking about the spike 3004 of coronavirus, which is greatly impacted by a successful transition between the Trump and Biden administrations. As we mentioned before, new or incoming chief of staff, Ron Klain, was on Meet the Press today. And he made the really important point that while the new news of the Pfizer vaccine is really great news, it actually has to be administered to be successful for there to be any sort of safety. Uh, we're going to have uh, meetings between our uh, top scientific advisors and the uh the officials of these drug companies, not just Pfizer, but there are other promising vaccines as well. Uh, we're going to start those consultations this week. But but again, yeah. I think that uh, there are two issues here, Chuck. One is the scientific issue around the vaccine. 
But I think in some ways the bigger issue, I've been saying this since April, the bigger issue will be the mechanics of manufacture and right. distribution and getting this vaccine out. And, and that really lies with folks at the Health and Human Services Department. We need to be talking to them as quickly as possible. You know, it's great to have a vaccine, but vaccines don't save lives. Vaccinations save lives. And that means you got to get that vaccine yeah. into people's arms all over this country. It's a giant logistical project. Yeah. Similar to earlier this year where the distribution of PPE was a really huge logistical undertaking, getting ventilators manufactured and delivered, getting PPE, masks, uh, face shields, all that type of equipment to all the healthcare workers and other essential workers was a huge undertaking and really consumed our like national attention for probably close to two months at least. That's what we're going to have to be thinking about. It's that same level of intense logistical requirements, if not more so, to actually administer this vaccine. Yeah, and it's been a very mixed bag in terms of the track record of this federal government to help coordinate Correct. those things, right? I mean, on one side of the coin, there's the ventilator issue, where even though we were very low on ventilators, no ventilators ever actually ran out. No one ever had the virus and didn't have a ventilator when they needed it, which was a real point of pride for members of the Trump administration. But at the same time, there were issues, and we heard it discussed by governors, where their states needed to get PPE, and they found themselves bidding against each other right. in order to get this PPE, and the prices were going you know, skyrocketing. The PPE wasn't necessarily getting to where it was needed most, but it was getting to the highest bidder. And often that was bigger states, and it left smaller states at a disadvantage. So, And it ended up you know, costing way more money than if the federal government had just purchased those things. So real, really mix, and, mixed tracks, right, track record. And then you almost need the logistical requirements to match the messaging, which was a whole other kind of huge mess earlier this year. And the vaccine's going to have to grapple with that, too, getting people to actually take it <laughs> and but, getting it in, into them. But speaking of the vaccine... We did have that fantastic news this week that that Pfizer vaccine was 90% effective, which is way higher than had been suggested by members of the task force that we have heard on these Sunday shows who were saying, hey, you know, maybe these early vaccines are not going to be as effective and we can hope that, you know, the second or third round of vaccine development would maybe zero in on the virus and become even more effective for people. In reality, that's not the case. This first vaccine looks extremely effective, and yet there's still lots of questions as to how effective it is, when that effectiveness is going to reach the public, and who's going to get it when. Here was a really, really great question to Dr. Anthony Fauci. This was one of the most valuable interviews we heard. Of course, a, a really big, big get for State of the Union and Jake Tapper to finally get Fauci on the Sunday shows. And uh, here's a question about kids and the vaccine. Is the Pfizer vaccine safe for kids? Has it been tested on kids? No, not yet. Uh, well, what we do, and, and this is not an unusual uh, situation, is that once you have a vaccine shown to be safe and effective in adult, you can go back and do phase one and phase two trials in children and then do what's called bridging it, namely using the immunogenicity data to show that it's comparable responses in children, but it's safe. And the reason we do that is that children are vulnerable and you always got to make sure 
that you're dealing with a safe and effective vaccine before you even think about putting it into children. You want to get the children to get it as quickly as you possibly can. You don't want to deprive them of access to it, but you want to make sure you're safe when you're dealing with a vulnerable population such as children. That's standard, what we do with almost all vaccines. This is just a really great explainer question by Jake Tapper. And Dr. Fauci really delivers on explaining why there isn't a vaccine yet for children and why it would kind of be up next for for research. But it's helpful to kind of understand the limits of this vaccine or where they are in the research because there is such intense COVID fatigue, because our school system this year is such a complete and utter failure and mess. It's important people realize that we're our government is worried about children, but still going to be doing it safely. There was another really important... Hold on, I just want to note, we got a new term we don't hear on the Sunday shows that often, immunogicity. <laughs> Listen, Dr. Fauci can use whatever words he wants. I will listen to every interview I can of him. Word of the day is immunogicity. What if you got that in a spelling bee? That'd be so messed up. Yeah. Okay, but we wanted to get to another moment in the interview with Jake Tapper and Dr. Fauci. And it's another, again, explainer question. Like, please help us understand X. And Jake Tapper asked Dr. Fauci the level of precaution people should have after they take the vaccine. Once somebody has been immunized, uh, for, I guess for Pfizer, it's two doses. Uh, I'm not sure what it is for Moderna or the other vaccines coming down the pike. But once it's once the process is complete, does that mean they can take off their mask? They don't have to social distance. They can just go about their lives as before. You know, I would recommend that that's not the case. I would recommend you have an added uh, area of protection. Obviously, with a 90 plus percent effective vaccine, you could feel much more confident. But I would recommend to people to not abandon all public health measures just because you've been vaccinated, because even though for the general population, it might be 90 to 95 percent effective, you don't necessarily know for you how effective it is. So when I get vaccinated, which I hope to when when it becomes my turn to get vaccinated, I'm not going to abandon completely public health measures. I could feel more relaxed and and essentially not having the stringency of it that we have right now. But I think abandoning it completely would not be a good idea. Because five to 10 percent of the people that get immunized, it will not be effective for. So they might actually get the virus if they just completely let down their guard. Okay, that's interesting. So don't go, as Donald Trump said he would at a rally, and kiss all the men and women uh, uh, on their faces once you get vaccinated. Probably not a good idea. But an interesting point by Fauci, and I feel like it's an, it's an area where the government is going to need to work a lot harder than Fauci did in this question in clarifying what the expectations people should have when they get vaccinated. It reminds me of the conversations we had a few months ago about social distancing and whether it was six feet or 10 feet or 15 feet or seven feet or two meters or whatever it was. What is that safe distance? Now, of course, as we know, it's always going to be sort of gradations. There's going to be this gray area. It's not like six feet and one inch is super safe and five feet, 11 inches is, you know, you're going to get the the virus if you're 
talking to somebody at that distance and they have it. That's not really how it works. But six feet is a good sort of round number for people to keep in their heads and feel comfortable about. Similarly, I think they're going to have to come up with a timeline and say, look, two weeks after you get the second vaccine or three weeks or a month or six weeks or whatever it is, give people a sense of when they can relax their social distancing and public health measures or help people understand what that word means, relaxed. What is that? I mean, that's what Fauci says. Oh, you can be a little more relaxed. Does that mean that you don't have to wear a mask when you go into the grocery store? Or does that mean that you don't have to stay six feet away or you can have more people over and have a party? Like what what does more relaxed mean? I think we need very, very clear direction for the public to understand what they should do best. But there'll be quite a process to get that vaccine. It'll be, like you mentioned, a tiered process of who's getting it. And in the meantime, we all need to be thinking about what else we can be doing to keep safe beyond just waiting for the vaccine. Yeah, especially since we had 180,000 new cases reported just in the U.S. in a single day this last week. It just keeps going up and up. Yeah, and the 100,000 cases per day record was just last week. We've been breaking that record repeatedly in the last seven to 10 days. Yeah, and I mean, it's just stunning, 180,000 in a single day. And you think about the early days of this crisis when Donald Trump said, I don't want these people coming on this ship into the U.S. where, you know, even if they're going to quarantine, I don't want to go from, you know, zero cases or three cases to like 30 in in one day just because a ship arrives. And now we're getting 180,000 every day. That's 180,000 people who are out there potentially infecting the next 180,000 or 200,000 people. P.S. There are still cruises going on and people taking cruises, which is absolute insanity. But anyway, on Meet the Press, Michael Osterholm was on. He's an infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota. He's actually been on Meet the Press multiple, multiple times throughout these last few months. And he is now also a member of President-elect Biden's COVID advisory board. So he's kind of like in the thick of it and trying to just figure out what they're going to do next to keep Americans safe. And Dr. Osterholm made the really important point that our government needs to figure out how they're going to help people if slash when they can't go to work because they have COVID or there's restrictions in their community or whatever, that we actually need to help people stay home. What does a local mayor do without the help of the federal government? Well, it's critical that we do get the help of the federal government, and I I can't make that any more uh, straightforward than that. Uh, If we're going to control this virus out in our communities right now, uh, we're going to have to support those who are going to be suffering economically. You know, you you have a choice. Do you want to have schools open or do you want to keep bars and restaurants open? Well, if you shut down bars and restaurants, they're hanging on by a thread. That single mother waitress that basically doesn't have any other income. We have got to support them in helping to do the right thing. This is just so important to hear scientists talking about the need for economic support to reinforce and make possible the public safety measures that are necessary to save lives. This is something we didn't see in the past, but it is absolutely critical for the scientists to say and recognize that there are other factors that are weighing on public servants when they're making these decisions. You, you just can't say, oh, you know, to be safe, we have to shut down and we have to deal with it. 
because human lives are at stake. You have to get to how is that going to be possible? How are you going to make it easier for people to make it through? And later on Meet the Press, there was actually a Republican agreeing with this with these same exact sentiments. Governor Asa Hutchinson said that, you know, it's really wrong to tell someone, hey, you can't open up your business, you're closed without giving them direct financial support. And this just goes to show Osterholm is right. Mayors, governors in blue and red communities alike are desperate for some economic relief to small business owners, to out-of-work workers who want to stay alive, want to be safe, but need to feed their families at the same time. It's just such a critical point right now for the United States to deal with the coronavirus. This is the worst period we have been in ever in this history of the virus. And earlier on, we had the federal government running, you know, firing on all cylinders, actually doing what needs to be done, supporting people because they knew that supporting people financially would make it easier for us to tackle this virus. And now it's just like nobody's minding the store. And now this is just exploding across the country. It needs to be dealt with. It needs to be dealt with now. And I don't understand why they think that somehow it was needed earlier in the crisis when it wasn't as bad as it is now, but somehow it's not needed anymore. That's just that's just the most absurd thing ever. But I do want to take us to the next uh, clip we wanted to talk about here, and that is a Republican governor, once again, the governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, saying that not only did he put in this mask mandate and has he had it in throughout the summer since July, but they're doing even more now because they have to do more. They have to get people to follow these mandates, to follow these orders, to keep citizens safe, even in Republican states. We're looking at hospitalization. For example, a month ago, we had a thousand people in our hospitals in Ohio. A week ago, just a week ago, we had 2,000. Now we have over 3,000. So uh, it's it, it's rolling through Ohio. Uh, you know, we had a mask order on that we put on in July. It still remains on. Uh, we have agents tomorrow for the first time who are actually going out into the different uh, retail establishments to make sure that the people are in fact wearing a mask. If you're if you're a clerk at a grocery store. Uh, you're 65, you may be diabetic, you have every right to expect that the people that come through there have a mask on. And while there's good compliance, many places, we do have some, unfortunately, that are outlaw outliers, and we're going to work to take care of that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Did you hear that? Did you hear the, the phrasing that Mike DeWine used there? He said, if you are a clerk at a grocery store, you have every right you have every right to expect that the people that come through there have a mask on. To expect that people who come through have a mask on. Rights. Oftentimes we heard Republicans saying, hey, they have a right not to wear a mask. And here, this Republican governor is saying, if you're working at a store, you have a right to be safe. Yeah. And this is in direct contradiction to what Governor DeWine said a few months ago where he wanted to put a statewide mandate on. He tried to. There was so much blowback that he rescinded it. He rescinded the mandate because he knew it would. there was just not enough support for it. You, you did something that not too many politicians do. You did an about face. You first announced that everyone would be required to wear face masks when retail opened, and then you reversed yourself when some of your citizens said it was offensive. Talk me through the thinking on that, because you were just talking about face masks. 
face, face masks are very important. And our, our business group came back and said, you know, every employee, for example, uh, should wear a face mask. So we're continuing that, uh, whether it's retail or, or wholesale, whatever it is, manufacturing, every employee is going to have the face mask. But uh, it became very clear to me uh, after we put out the, the, the order uh, that everyone in retail who walked into a store as a customer would have to do that. It became clear to me that that was just a bridge too far, that people were, were not going to accept the government telling them what to do. Uh, and so we put out, you know, dozens and dozens of orders. Uh, that was one that it just went too far. But at the same time we pulled that back, I said, look, this is highly recommended. Uh, this is uh, for most people, it's unless you've got a physical reason, you can't wear the mask. And we understand that. But when you go into a retail store, that is the kind thing to do. There was just not enough support for it. But the cases are rising so much in Ohio that he's kind of gone back and put that order in again. Well, he put it in in July, he says, and now he's going to enforce it. Right. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot more news coming out of Biden's COVID advisory team about what their comprehensive plan is going to be, what type of preparation that they need to do. We'll hear more from probably governors and mayors about how they're trying to keep their constituents safe in these dangerous couple months of holiday gathering and travel and not not being able to be outdoors with other people. There's just a whole confluence of factors that is going to make it really challenging for the outgoing and incoming administrations to really lead us through this crisis. And so I'm sure there'll be a lot more to discuss around COVID safety. Absolutely. So that takes us to show rankings. This was actually a really good week in the Sunday shows. very, very solid. Yeah. Yeah. And it was it was a fresh week. You know, we saw a lot of fresh faces like Ron Klain and uh, and other members of the task force, the Biden task force. It seemed like this is kind of an introduction to the faces we'll be seeing more and more as we transition into a Biden administration in the next few months. But it was... I, 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 I mean, don't Republican know. senators are nowhere to be seen. It's pretty much... Well, yeah, I mean... They have gone into hiding. They are bears. They are in full hibernation mode. Chuck Todd said that Meet the Press reached out to every single Republican senator. And not one would go on. Not one would go on. But I don't know. I was, frankly, surprised surprised that uh, I, I I guess I should say I was excited and we've mentioned this before that Polylog was going to get to cover a new group of people and characters once Biden was inaugurated but that's happening now yeah I mean, yeah it feels fresher earlier than we thought it would yeah absolutely so very very strong shows I think rankings wise I think I think meet the press is number one I don't State know. State of the Union, a close second. I I would say State of the Union's one. Once again, they had such strong bookings. Having Fauci on, that, that interview was so good. But Meet the Press had both Klain and Asa Hutchinson that I thought were really important interviews and had that fantastic Latino segment at the end. Okay, you're right. Okay, so Meet the Press with State of the Union as a close... Very close second. Very close second. This week is last for that... Unnecessary. Unnecessary voter segment that they started their show with. And so then that would put... Fox News Sunday at three. Fox News at three. And there was no Face the Nation. If you notice, we didn't have any Face the Nation clips. Face the Nation was not on today because some sport, tennis, golf, I don't know. They weren't on. And so we only had to cover four shows today. Yeah. And Fox News Sunday was a pretty strong show. I was impressed with the fact that from the Fox News perspective, everyone on the show was talking about, you know, President-elect Biden. There wasn't a... Certainly there were questions about it as there were on other shows. And they did invite on 
Ken Starr, who uh, who is that only voice supporting the uh, and pushing President Trump's perspective. But I, I was very surprised that it was all President-elect Biden from the correspondence down to Chris Wallace, or up to Chris Wallace, I should say. So for today's dialogue challenge, Naomi, what is the challenge this week? My dialogue challenge is to ask your family, ask your friends Mm. what they're doing for Thanksgiving and really urge, plead, beg, whatever it takes that your favorite people in this world stay safe this holiday. Yeah, there was such a powerful thing that we weren't able to pull a clip on, but we heard from Mike DeWine, the governor of Ohio, where he said, you know, let's, we have got to try to get through this period so that when, you know, when that light at the end of the tunnel of of the vaccines finally arrives, we're all here to enjoy it. And, uh, and that's just, that's just a powerful, powerful statement. It's like, we're, we're on this journey to make it to this safe space but we have to be careful right now. We have to be so, so careful. Everyone makes it there. And everyone is tired and frustrated and we're feeling that with you, but please, please, please talk to your loved ones, your favorite people and urge them to be safe too. And invent and invite new ways to, to stay connected in this difficult time. You never know. You might just find some joy in the new ways you connect with people. So if you want to connect with us, you can always do that by emailing us at podcast at polylog.com. You can follow me at bstidal on Twitter. You can follow the show at polylogcast, and you can follow me at soroneomi underscore. Thanks, everyone, and we will talk with you next week. Stay safe. Bye. Bye.